So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the August 2017 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Nicole Tanner, associate professor from the Thoracic Oncology Research Group in the section of pulmonary medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. She's here to discuss her article, Physician Assessment of Pretest Probability of Malignancy and Adherence with Guidelines for Pulmonary Nodule Evaluation. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. My next guest is Dr. Jonathan Icarino. He's the assistant professor from the Pulmonary Center at Boston University School of Medicine in Boston. He's here to discuss his accompanying editorial, Pulmonary Nodule Guidelines, What Physicians Do When Evidence-Based Guidelines Lack High-Quality Evidence. John, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, well, set the stage here for us, Nicole. You know, what, what were you guys trying to accomplish? You know, what, why did you do the study, and you know, what were you interested in asking and answering? Right. So we know from recent um, published reports from Michael Gould in the Blue Journal uh, that the annual incidence of pulmonary nodules is estimated to be around 1.6 million. This is a tenfold increase from what was previously reported in the literature uh, based on chest x-ray stuff. And so, you know, as pulmonologists, we know that uh, pulmonary nodules uh, pose a diagnostic dilemma uh, for clinicians and for patients alike. And um, we had done some research before, a uh, retrospective um, chart review of how pulmonologists managed pulmonary nodules that presented their, to their clinics. And what we found with that study, uh, interestingly, was that um, no matter what the pretest probability was for malignancy, whether it be low, intermediate, or high, there was no difference between surgical um, interventions. So even low-risk nodules, less than 5%, were undergoing um, surgical resection, which was a, lit a little bit alarming. And the uh, percentage of patients who underwent surgery for benign disease was as high as 40%. And so the big limitation, yeah, the big limitation of that study was that we really didn't know going forward if the pulmonologist um, who were seeing these patients had actually assessed what the pretest probability was. Um, and so the real purpose of this was to see um, this, this new study, which was prospective, was to see if uh, pre-test probability assessment uh, correlated with how clinicians uh, managed uh, patients' pulmonary nodules. And so we had the opportunity um, within the context of uh, a large multi-center trial, um, which was evaluating a blood biomarker for nodule evaluation, to see um, the diagnostic odyssey, you will, uh, if you will, of patients with pulmonary nodules. And so... Every patient who was enrolled in the trial had a clinician assessed pretest probability, and all of the factors that you need to plug into these pretest probability calculators are also available. So we could then compare clinician assessment to two validated no nodule models, one being the Mayo model and the other being the VA model. Um, and so really that was the goal, and it was interesting what we found in that um, clinicians, at least those involved in this trial, were very good at predicting whether or not a nodule was benign or malignant. Um, and actually better than these validated mod, uh, risk models. Um, the other thing that we found, which was probably not surprising, um, was that clinicians really weren't following the guidelines, even though they were so good at determining right ahead of time whether something was benign or malignant. In some cases, um, clinicians went ahead and were more conservative, so in the higher pretest probability for malignancy, greater than 64%. Um, they were a bit more conservative, maybe not sending someone straight to surgery as the guidelines suggest. However, in the low-risk category, less than 5%, they were still being a bit more aggressive. Instead of serial CT imaging, which is what our ACCP guidelines recommend, 
they were doing more things like biopsies or um, even PET scans, which aren't recommended for that um, group. And so there's a number of things that we can talk about. Certainly there are limitations to this study, um, and it's not so black and white as low, low probability you do this, high probability you do that. Uh, guidelines are meant to be guidelines, um, and, you know, the evidence behind them, as Jonathan points out in his editorial and we point out in our paper, is kind of weak. And so um, a lot is to be said about what to do, but nodules are uh, a confusing thing, and patient preference certainly um, falls into play as we talk about these things. Well, so why don't we just, why don't we break our discussion then sort of into the two big findings that you know your your paper has. I mean, the first one being just that that you know the the, the calculators um, didn't even perform as well as just the physician so-called eyeball test. Um, and then after you know, let's talk let's chew on that for a little bit, and then let's get into also the the real heart of this. I think, which is that you know we have guidelines that seem to be just sitting on a shelf, if you will, as opposed to being implemented. Does that sound fair to both of you? Yeah. Sure. So, so John, what do you think? I mean, expand a little bit on you know, on that. On the on the, you know, were you shocked to find out that that you know the the people in the study do a pretty good job of of you know looking at that CT scan, looking at their patient, and eyeballing them up and down as to whether or not you know they've got uh, a malignancy or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, first I think I really enjoyed uh, the study. I think it was, it was really well done, and I, I, I was a little surprised um, that they actually performed better than the metrics. I think, um, as, as Nicole cited in her paper, I think um, prior studies had shown you know we, we do about as good a job as some of the uh, the calculators, and so um, that was a little bit of a surprising finding to me. Although, um, you know, I think, and as, as we're getting towards it, I think you know the main issue isn't per se recognizing the risk or the dilemma these nodules pose, but what to do when you do recognize that risk. And so I think that is, um, is, is almost, you know, the kind of more surprising finding that even in pretty high-risk nodules, um, in, or pretty large nodules in this study as well, um, physicians don't follow guidelines. Um, so even when the stakes are really the highest, um, you know, we're not following what societies, what the, the you know, medical um, groups say that we should be doing. Right. And, and Nicole, correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously in the confines of a larger study um, that was examining a proteomic marker, I was probably biased towards centers that have a high volume, uh, high, you know, utilization of, of seeing patients with nodules and evaluation of nodules, et cetera, right? I mean, you, these are, I would assume, a, a group with fairly large experience of evaluating nodules. You're exactly right, Kyle, and we do point that out. I mean, this is a 33-center trial with over 313 clinicians, but to be part of this trial, you had to have a certain, you know, demographic, and perhaps these are places that have pulmonary nodule clinics. As a participating site, we had two pulmonary nodule clinics, and so, you know, these are pulmonologists that are really specialized in lumps and bumps and spots and, and you know, see six to ten new pulmonary nodules a week. So, yes, they probably have a higher sense of expertise, I would I would say. So we shouldn't abandon our, our nodule calculators. <laughs> oh God, no! And I would say, you know, even from a even from a teaching standpoint, I think that the calculators are really helpful. Um, you know, when you have a fellow or a resident or somebody that you're working with or somebody new, and it's helpful for documentation um, of nodule risk, and and even I think it's helpful for patient. You know, I'm sure we'll get to the point where we talk about communication, but there's nothing like bringing up a validated calculator, plugging it in, and reassuring the patient sitting in front of you that indeed it is low risk. Um, also, the one thing to remember about nodule calculators is that they're only good as the um, cohort that they were developed in, and so prevalence of malignancy is really important. So, for instance, the Mayo model, which um, is most frequently used and very easily accessible online, uh, was developed from a patient population with a prevalence of malignancy of about 25 percent. 
versus the VA model, which was developed from um, a cohort that had a prevalence of malignancy of around 50%. So we think you have to kind of tailor it right. to um, which population you're using it for, but I think it's great for documentation. Um, similarly, in that other uh, trial that we did um, that I mentioned with community pulmonologists, the prevalence of malignancy in that group was 25%, so the Mayo model worked pretty well in that group, just as an aside. And just to echo on Nicole's, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, John. Just go ahead, echo John. Nicole's comment, I've actually found the calculus incredibly useful um, with patients uh, because I think, I think having a nodule discussion, talking about what it is, what it means, is very challenging in and of itself. And so to have something you can pull up on the computer screen, on an iPad, an iPhone, actually show your patient that this is what it means, this is the, the risk of, the, of cancer, it, it can really help sort of help them visualize and sort of, you know, really kind of take home the message about how much they should be concerned about it. Absolutely. I've, I've had the experience of, you know, I was, my advice to the patient was to get this resected. They're like, no, no, no. And then you pop it into the calculator. Up comes a number. They see the number. Their eyes widen up and off to the OR they go. Exactly. You know, yeah. it, it has, numbers seem to have that value, right, for our patients. Right. Yeah, I think it so, individualizes it for sure. Sure. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so now let's jump to some of the more, the, the, I think even the meteor component of, the, of the, your study, Nicole. Um, um, I'm going to throw this out here right now for both of you and chew on it. Um, do we even need guidelines? Since we don't seem to follow them, there's a lot of money, effort, and time that gets put into to, to making these things. Um, I mean, I'm being provocative for a reason, obviously, to get, you both, to get you both talking. But do we need them? I'll throw out that maybe we don't. Um, Jonathan, would you like to start? I have a very that one first. Yeah, I think there's I think there's great clinical value towards guidelines. Um, I think it's important to remember that guidelines are guidelines in the sense that they're not laws or rules of medicine, so they don't necessarily always need to be followed. But I do think it's helpful, particularly with challenging diagnoses like a pulmonary nodule, that there's a lot of complexities with identifying nodule characteristics, patient risk factors. The algorithms, algorithms as they currently stand are quite complicated and complex, and so navigating those without guidelines, I think, is incredibly cumbersome. Um, I think part of the reason they are not followed is because of how cumbersome the guidelines themselves can be sometimes, but I think without them, um, it, would, it would really leave a lot of physicians who don't do this all the time, who don't see six to ten nodules a day, um, you know, who might see one or two nodules a week, um, you know, that it really helps those clinicians, particularly who are less experts have less expertise in pulmonary nodule management to sort of say, okay, this is what the experts suggest I do in this situation that I'm otherwise not familiar with clinically. I would agree with that 100%. I think they provide a great framework, and, you know, the more you use them, the more they stick in your mind. Um, and, and it is a challenge, it's a diagnostic challenge um, for the most part. And I even, again, bringing it back to the patients in my conversations, you know, I will say you have this spot on your lung. We're not entirely sure what it is. I show it to them on the screen, and then I talk about the guidelines. I say, you know, we have um, guidelines with our societies that help us. They're not 100%, but they guide us, and I want to kind of outline for you what the potential options are, hear how you feel about those, um, and what would be acceptable to you. And so we kind of go through it. And so I think it helps to structure the conversation you have with the patient. But, again, I think more importantly, structure the, the mindset of, of, a, of a clinician who's not 
um, managing these things all the time. So I think that they're very important, although they're not perfect, and, and that's what we see. There's a lot of nuances, and there's a lot of interpret, interpretability of it, but I, I think there are some things um, about these particular guidelines that are very strong, assess pretest probability, um, you know, lay it out for the patient and figure out what they would like, especially in that huge intermediate risk category from 6 to 64%, which is the majority of nodules, which is the most open to interpretation. Um, and so I think it, it's helpful for sure. And I think the other, the other role for them um, from a development standpoint and a dissemination standpoint, is there a great way to sort of organize the, uh, the evidence um, for management, for evaluation, um, sort of organize and synthesize what the evidence currently is, what we know, how strong it is, and then based on that, what do experts recommend? And I think with methods such as the GRADE method, which I know a lot of guidelines currently use, it's a really systematic approach, very transparent um, for clinicians to say, oh, you know, this is the recommendation. I can see why because of studies X, Y, Z. Um, this is the strength of the evidence. And so it's a really sort of transparent way to say this is what we should do and this is why we should do it. So, so why don't we follow them then? Yeah, well, I think the one, yeah, it, there's a lot of different reasons, and you know, you can. You, <laughs> I mean, uh, so perhaps people don't believe them. I mean, the, the other elephant in the room is: could people, and when I say people, are clinicians being more aggressive in their management because there's some kind of perverse incentive, right? Is there some kind of legal? medical legal thing in the background, and you hate to say that, but it might be in the back of someone's mind. You know, if I miss a cancer, I'm going to be sued. Um, no, it's it's so real world, right? I mean, it, guidelines it are written in a vacuum. Okay, you know, there's a yeah, reaction in front of you. Exactly. And so, you know, and then I think, uh, lastly, what we couldn't capture in this study, which is an area that I think is so important moving forward as we look at nodule management, um, is patient preference. And I know... Um, Jonathan mentions is the Watch the Spot trial that's ongoing, um, the PCORI Michael Gould uh, run trial, and they are trying to um, capture some patient preference um, around nodule management uh, decisions as well. And so I, I think um, any trial that looks at nodule management going forward really needs to capture that. That's the big thing that's kind of been lacking from our two studies is that we, we aren't assessing that. Um, because I, I think when you have someone who's sitting in front of you, and I think we use the example in our um, manuscript with the COPD who's at high risk for a biopsy, right. um, you know, even though the pretest probability might be 90%, if their competing causes of death are so high, you might just sit on it for a little while if that's what the patient wants, you know? Right. Um, and so I think that's something to consider. Out of, out of curiosity, just, you know, anecdotally from the, from the practice that the two of you have, how often do you find that you've, you know, you say, look, you know, guideline-based, blah, 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 you should biopsy this. And, and the patient says, well, you know, I'm kind of sick. I mean, you know, or, or as you're, maybe you're, you're not laying it out so black and white, but you're, you're in a sort of a negotiation with them. Do, can you anecdote or, or just estimate for me how often, even in your own practice, you feel like you, you know, quote, deviate from the guidelines? I mean, albeit justifiably, but, but you know, maybe, maybe you're, what you found in the study isn't so off from how, you know, everyone practices. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think at least in my practice, um, I almost always start there, right? So I'm always sort of like, okay, right. in, in, in a box, this is, this is the recommendation for this patient based on their nodule characteristics, their pretest probability, their risk factors. Um, and then, but then I think it, it does become a little bit of a conversation with the patient as well as a little bit your own clinical acumen in terms of, okay, do they have severe COPD that would limit resection? Do they have end-stage heart failure where the competing cause of death um, might, you know, not warrant 
close follow-up of that 8-millimeter nodule. Um, you know, if I were to put a number on it, it's a little hard to say. I mean, I, I would maybe 20, 25 percent of the time, you know, you end up, uh, end up probably deviating one way or the other based on patient preference, comorbidities, um, and, and other issues. It might even be a little higher than that. Yeah, I think it's hard to quantify what what number. And I also think, you know, (laughs) yeah, I think going back to the whole, you know, what we're discussing here is shared decision-making and how do you have a conversation with a patient such that they're making a decision based on their values and beliefs. And so I think I have to start off with what patient is sitting in front of me because when you look at the shared decision-making literature, there is a spectrum of how much the patient wants to be involved. And so I see patients at the VA hospital and I see patients at the university. And so I will tell you my veterans for the most part, are very paternalistic in the way they receive their medical care. They're, whatever you say, doc, what would you do? Yeah, you're the expert. And then, you know, at the university, there might be somebody who comes in with a sack of papers that they printed off of WebMD that says this is how we are going to do it. Um, And so, you know, I think before you even have the conversation, you have to know who's sitting in front of you and then kind of gauge how much they want to know. Some of my veterans will glaze over, at which point, you know, we'll stop the conversation. I'll just outline it and say, I think that you have um, really bad COPD. There's a really big chance that I'm going to drop your lung here. Things are growing. They're getting larger. It's not in a good space. We're going to have a tumor report discussion, and hopefully they'll treat you without a tissue diagnosis. That's very rare, but we have those conversations. And so, you know, do I deviate from the guidelines? Yeah, probably. Um, how often? I don't know. If you want me to put a number on it, Kyle, to appease you, 10 to 20% maybe? <laughs> you don't need to appease me. To <laughs> if I'm pulling it out of the air, I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to know. But, but I think, yeah, it speaks to what we found is that there are other factors besides the, the vacuum that you both have mentioned or the box, like this is what you do. So. Nicole, I think no, and, I, I think that's and Jonathan, you outlined that in your in your yeah. editorial. A lot of the reasons why people don't follow guidelines. Yeah, and I think what Nicole said, I mean, I could, it was spot on. You know, I think for, on the one hand, um, in terms of the shared decision making piece, one thing we do not do well, and this has been um, uh, shown in some of the studies I've been involved with, is that uh, pulmonologists or, or physicians in general are not good at one sharing the decision, but then two even gauging sort of what level of involvement their patients want to have. A lot of times we make assumptions. We say, oh, you know, I, I know this person. They don't, really want, they don't really want to make a decision without actually asking the patient or really sort of eliciting sort of what role they want to take in their own care. Um, you know, the point you're getting at in terms of there are a lot of reasons we don't follow guidelines. Um, and I think, you know, I, I like to think of it from sort of three different levels, sort of a, a, to just simplify it at the patient level. Um, so, you know, patient preferences, patient values, um, you know, and, and other patient characteristics that might influence their ability to do what's recommended or not. Um, I think there's also physician um, impact in terms of, you know, we talked a little bit about familiarity with the guidelines, um, attitudes towards the guidelines, whether we believe them or not, our own experiences, um, as well as sort of our own local um, uh, resource availability. And then there's a sort of a systems level. And so sort of on the macro level, you know, insurance-wise in terms of uh, resource availability at the system level, sort of what can we do with these nodules. And I think factors really in all three of those realms, it's, it's outlined nicely by uh, Michael Cabana in, in his article about why um, physicians don't follow guidelines. And, and really, you know, it's like a chain-link fence, and any, any missing link could potentially, you know, uh, go awry in terms of why, why patients aren't receiving the care that we recommend. Right, and I would agree with that 100%. And there's so there's things that fall in each of those categories that you outlined so well. I think the interesting thing with this paper, though, is that 
you know, when they were more conservative in that high risk category, they were they tended to be right, you know, and so they yeah. might have avoided yeah. some surgeries um, at the expense of maybe an extra biopsy. But if it's me, I'd rather have a biopsy than a surgery. Um, well, if it that pro- actually, proves that it's not cancer, <laughs> that's my per- that's my patient preference. That also might speak to how, uh, how the, the evidence the guidelines are based upon. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly, <laughs> which is so weak. But the the part that does concern me really is that low risk category. Yeah. Um, that that in uh, when the pretest probability is less than five percent, the fact that we are ordering PET scans with the radiation risks, the costs. You know, we talk about resources um, for something that you should just watch with should that the guidelines recommend watching or even getting a biopsy in something that's so low risk and putting the patient at a high risk for a complication. Now, I would say that perhaps there is a really, you know, scared, freaked out patient that you have to peel off the ceiling um, and, and, you know, you, you're getting them a biopsy against your better judgment uh, and you document all that. But I, I just can't imagine that that's the majority of the time. And so in that lower risk category where we have the potential to do more harm than good, I, I get a little concerned when I see people going to, to surgery for benign disease in that category, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a great point. What I find interesting, what I found interesting in your studies, um, you know, I, I always feel like the extremes are sort of pretty clear cut, right? So we all know that there are patients that um, should not get a biopsy, should not have surgery. They're so low risk. They're, you know, it's pretty like 99% of the time no one would do surgery. And then there's right. patients on the other end where we say, okay, that's definitely cancer. They're very high risk. You know, this person definitely should go straight to surgery. And in those, it's sort, of, it's sort of hard to argue the other way. And so those cases are sort of interesting when we do go the other way about why we're doing them that way. Um, you know, all the ones in the middle, you know, the gray area, I think that obviously is, is an area that needs a lot of research to work upon. But I think those cases that deviate from sort of the extremes where we sort of know what the right thing is to do, like pretty, pretty confidently, um, and we're still not doing them. So you know, why is that? Right. I'm, I'm curious, Nicole. I mean, you had access to the data and was part of a larger study. Do you have any ability to follow up with the clinicians who took those low-risk patients, say, to the operating room or to PET scan, just to, to get a – it wouldn't be something quantitative, but almost, almost the equivalent of an interview of what was the factor here, you know? And, and maybe it was a patient who says, I, you know, I have to have this, I want this no matter what. You know, and fine, that's a patient-driven factor, as we've talked about earlier. But I'm, I'm curious if there's a way to even – qualitatively look at what did push that because I agree that the low risk group you know getting unnecessary things is is of, of really high concern I think you know we can all justify the high risk patient that went to the OR for ultimately benign disease I mean it would have been nice to have avoided that but you know we all went in with with you know, pretty good confidence as to why we went into the operating room um, but on the low risk patients it always seems concerning a crime almost that we took someone to the operating room who, you know, really should have been a watch and wait approach. Right. Well, I think, Kyle, you posed a very interesting um, study question. You know, could we do a qualitative um, questionnaire type of thing or qualitative interviews, focus groups, whatever you want to do um, with with clinicians and see what they do? You know, I think there has been some work done through surveys anyways, looking at how... um, clinicians or pulmonologists think they do the guidelines, and they all say, oh, yes, I, I listen to the guidelines, I follow the guidelines. Right. Um, I'm, a, I'm a guideline steward. Um, but I think, um, you know, you're asking me, do I have access to the, to the data? Yes. I think it would be kind of difficult to go back retrospectively to 300 and something odd pay, uh, 
physicians and say, hey, <laughs> why'd you do this? It doesn't match up. But, you know, it's almost like slapping them on the wrist with a ruler. But I think yeah. moving forward. <laughs> it wasn't meant to feel like that. It was more to try to. Yeah. Yeah. Right, to, to ascertain I'm, what I'm they're the gui- thinking. I'm the, I'm the guidelines police. <laughs> right, exactly. You're wrong. Um, so I think, you know, move, but moving forward, I think that's really an interesting question that someone uh, that, as far as I'm not aware of, maybe, Jonathan, you know, that, that hasn't really been investigated from a pulmonologist managing clinician standpoint why people do what they do. Um, and so there's lots of surveys and case um, studies where they will present the person who's taking it on the computer with a, a nodule and say, what would you do next and what would you do next? But, you know, that's just a case study. You know, it's not like why with this particular patient. I think that um, asking those types of questions would probably fill in some of these gaps, and that's what qualitative research is really meant to do. And to piggyback on that, I think another interesting question that arises from this is um, asking the patients who received the surgery why they, why they, what their perspective was. And so, you know, maybe maybe the physician thinks, well, this patient wanted to be aggressive, blah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, is the, does the patient's perspective match up? You know, so does their perspective on why they received a potentially unnecessary surgery um, does it match up with what the physician perceived as the reason for why they went forward with it? Well, there's always still been that ongoing perception, of course, that a surgery for a benign nodule, hey, the good news is it wasn't cancer. Right. Right. And it's so funny you should say that. I had a conversation with a patient today that said that to me, and he's having some issues afterwards. He said, well, I guess I should be happy that it wasn't cancer. Um, <laughs> and so so that happens. Uh, yeah. I'd be curious, um, do either of you wonder or have thoughts as to what may be the, the, the leading reason that we see a deviation from guidelines ever? Meaning, is it predominantly a patient preference thing or is it a phenomenon of, well, you know, I, I would love to take this person to some form of a diagnostic, you know, uh, procedure, whether that was a needle or, a, you know, a bronc or whatever, but our institution lacks expertise in those areas, so we're going to go straight to the operating room, et cetera. Um, or, you know, uh, this patient's insurance dictates X, Y, and Z. I'm just curious, you know, I'm not aware of data, but do either you have a, an instinct as to what's principally driving this? Is it sort of the patient or the physician or maybe the resources? I, you know, I, I really don't think there's one driver. I mean, I think there, there's just, I think there's so many factors at play um, yeah. that sort of as barriers to implementation um, that it, it's really sort of a mix. I mean, I really, I don't know any data that sort of looks at it to say that can really pinpoint the reason. Um, I've done some work trying to do that, and then it seems that we find multiple reasons um, everywhere we look. But I think you know, really, if you really think about the process of diagnosing a pulmonary nodule and then getting all the way to the patient actually getting follow-up for that nodule, that whole process requires multiple clinicians, um, often multiple patient visits, you know, multiple uh, visits and procedures that have to get billed to the insurance, the use of resources, and really any sort of break in that chain really could prevent that patient from getting. So even if you intended to give the patient guideline, concordant follow-up from, from you know, diagnosis, you have diagnosis, someone has to recognize the nodule, someone has to determine when and how it should be followed up, communicate that possibly to another provider who's going to be driving the ship on that follow-up management, communicating that to the patient, bringing them in for an appointment to explain it, scheduling the follow-up, getting the patient back for follow-up, and, and it goes on and on. There's probably even multiple steps that I'm missing in that process. And so I think <laughs> that the, the complexities of really going from diagnosis to evaluation, um, you know, 
being able to navigate that entire thing, even as a physician, is challenging, never mind from the patient's perspective. Absolutely. I think it's multifactorial. I don't think you can pinpoint it. You know, it might be in your institution, maybe it's more patient-driven because we follow guidelines at our institution or whatever you want to say, or it might be, uh, you know, physician-driven because that this is how they see it and, and you know, they're not going to do shared decision-making. <laughs> so so there's that as well. Uh, you know, I, and the other thing is, is from a systems standpoint, you know, what's your electronic medical record like? Is there some way to you know, tag these incidentally detected nodules. Um, do you have a nodule coordinator? Is there a database to make sure that the person who's due for that annual scan um, gets that annual scan? And this kind of melts with the whole uh, implementation of lung cancer screening and, and follow-up um, and, you know, being adherent to, to the next step. Um, so I, I don't think you can pinpoint one thing. No, I didn't think so either, but I just wanted to hear the two of you talk. <laughs> <laughs> what, what haven't we talked about? We've been talking for a little bit, but what, what haven't we touched upon? Or is there a part of your study, Nicole, that we've overlooked or you know, something, John, that you were pointing out that you, know, you would wish we expanded upon? Or if not, any final thoughts? Well, I would just say that, you know, I don't think that we overlooked anything. Um, and one of the things that Jonathan points out is uh, the need to really strengthen the evidence behind the guidelines. So it's not just a category 2C or grade 2C or 2B. Um, right. I think that we need to look a little bit more at that intermediate risk category and maybe adjust the thresholds. We know that the British Thoracic Society guidelines are a little bit different than the ACCP guidelines in that they have a 10% uh, risk uh, cutoff for the low and a 70% cutoff for the high. In our first trial that I mentioned, we did an analysis and showed that if we moved that low risk probability from less than 5% to less than 15%, we only would have missed one cancer, um, and that probably would have been followed. If looked at 10%, you would have missed no cancers. And so I think that um, as we try to get people to be less aggressive when it's lower risk, that maybe adjusting that threshold as arbitrary as they might be um, is something to consider in future, future iterations of the guidelines. Um, just a thought, and, and again, trying to strengthen the evidence. And one thing that we haven't talked about much is where all of these novel biomarkers and things that are being developed um, fall into right. to the guidelines. And, you know, nothing is ready for prime time, in my um, personal opinion, um, but I think that it will be something that we add to our toolbox of uh, radio, radiomic, uh, proteomic uh, patient you know, characteristics that all get put into this internal calculator of figuring out whether something can is cancer or not. Right. Something to adjust yeah. the bar, right? Where am I on that spectrum? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, think that's a great point. I mean, I think that, um, you know, biomarkers are, are certainly promising, and I think it's sort of like help is along is coming. You know, help is um, yeah. we might, But, you know, what do we do until then? Um, right. Know, what do we do until that help, we, that help gets here? And so and I think your, your, your comment about needing better evidence is, is, is spot on. I think it says something when um, guidelines themselves can't agree with each other. You know, so, so how, how are we expecting clinicians to follow guidelines when we have guidelines that tell you to two, do two different things. And so I think that really right. speaks to the, the low quality of evidence that you know, the guide, own natural guidelines are based upon. Um, and I think that the need to sort of strengthen that with some of the, the current studies going on will, will certainly be helpful. Um, I think, you know, along with that, you know, we're, we're sort of in, in a little bit of a, a precarious position because with lung cancer screening, obviously a, you know, a different world than pulmonary nodule evaluation, but certainly that's how a lot of pulmonary nodules are now giving 
found. And so we're sort of probably exponentially going to increase the diagnoses without really still knowing what to do with them. And so that really, I think, has potential to sort of, um, we really have potential to cause harm um, if we don't do this the, the best way possible. Right. I think we need to be thoughtful about how we, how we approach these things, and hopefully there will be more studies to help us inform that decision. Well, as you stated from the beginning, the the thrust upon all of us that are seeing patients, this is only going to be. This is a problem that's going to only get larger. As I mean, the the growth in the so-called incidentaloma has already been steady, tenfold increase, and then uh, you know, an exponential increase. And now you have you know that's even without the full prime time of lung cancer screening right. being implemented. I mean, this is this is a growing problem. Pardon the pun <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> so. Excellent. Well, as expected, guys, this was a fantastic discussion. I'm not surprised at all. So um, thank you so much for your time, both of you, and have a great day. Yeah, thanks, yeah, for, thanks for having us.